Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and this is my podcast about important pieces of public interest litigation which have shaped Australian life. You can find previous episodes of the podcast on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and you can find me on Twitter at at townsendjoelc. I spoke last time about the VCAT case of COBOL Community Health, which related to an attempt by a community health service which ran a group for rural and regional young people identifying as lesbian, gay or bisexual to rent out a camp on Phillip Island. They were denied the opportunity to rent the camp and were found by the tribunal to have been discriminated against on the basis of sexual orientation. The camp relied on religious exemptions to the Equal Opportunity Act and there was an argument before the tribunal as to whether the discrimination in which they had engaged was conduct which was authorised by the doctrines of the Christian religion and there was debate about that before the tribunal. After the tribunal proceedings had concluded, Christian Youth Camps, the respondent, appealed to Victoria's Court of Appeal. And in a long-running proceeding, the court considered the scope of the religious exemptions and the evidence before the tribunal. I began my discussion about this by talking to Sue Hackney and Jim McKenna about what it meant to have this appeal instituted. I learnt from the legal team that, you know, there was a a strong possibility that they might appeal. Again, I was a little bit naive. I didn't sort of have a sense of what that might mean and certainly how long that would take. Um, And then, of course, the inevitable did happen and uh, the team advised us that there had been an appeal lodged. Um, But, you know, as they explained the process to me, that then becomes, you know, into the realms of where it's it's more or less all legal argument. And in that regard, if there was a sort of a further alienation on a personal level and an individual level for for people who are named as the named complainants to to what was happening with getting the matter resolved. And whilst I totally understand that that is just the way things happen in the legal system. I, I, I remember reflecting and also talking about it with the young people about, you know, you think we could get a little bit better on this one because particularly when it comes to matters of discrimination and human rights, there's just something a little bit disempowering in the way we've got the system organised that those who have been impacted and impacted on quite personal levels are not part of the process or, you know, they're at arm's length from the process of resolving, you know, of resolving the matter. So more on a philosophical level. But I suppose, you know, this was, um, and, and it was, the young people were actually sort of becoming older people by this stage, as indeed was I. Um, and 
they were getting on with their life, which is exactly what they should have been doing. And we were losing connection with them. And um, But when I was able to have um, just the occasional catch-up with them, they were still, still very proud of where things had gone to, even at the tri- tribunal level. And perhaps a little bit like myself, not fully understanding or really knowing what's going to how things play out in the Supreme Court, but nevertheless never had any regrets about pursuing the matter in the first instance. It was described by the President, uh, I think in his judgment, as um, unprecedented in terms of scale and complexity for a discrimination law case. It, it, there were there was a there was a significantly significant and lengthy um, a number of iterations of the notice of appeal, and then after the two days of hearing, the court contacted the parties with a further list of issues that it 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 wished to have addressed. So, for memory, that was the reason why there were two days of hearing in February, and then the parties came back in August for another day. So um, there, w- there, there was a, certainly an evolution of the grounds of appeal from the applicant, um, but also the court, obviously, after working through the submissions and, and um, in preparing the reasons, there were a number of other issues that arose that, that it um, asked the parties to address. President Maxwell makes a point that this is it's, it's unique in terms of um, the complexity for any discrimination case. But it is, I mean, one of the problems that we have with the current system is that to, it's a very rare scenario where a group like Tobor is able to um, to follow this through. Um, it, it was seven and a half years. They had, you know, Mallison's acting pro bono, they had pro bono counsel. But even when they got to the Court of Appeal, it was a very hard decision for them as to whether they would act actively oppose it because of the cost risk, you know, and even there was a, a conditional cost agreement put in place between COBOR and CYC to cap cost of 50 grand. But even 50 grand would have, for a community health centre, would have been absolutely devastating for them. So it's a huge thing for organisations and people who are, dis- who are, um, are the victim of discrimination to actually enforce their rights. And it's um, it's a flaw in the system, um, and I don't know what the answer is. But you know, the fact that it was seven and a half years for um, for this process to um, to unfold um, is um, is a shame. Not only did it take a long time for the Court of Appeal to come to hear the appeal against Vicat's decision. It was a lengthy proceeding once the appeal hearing had commenced. The hearing commenced in February of 2013 and a decision wasn't rendered until April of the following year. The court rendered a lengthy and complex judgment with each of the three justices of the Court of Appeal writing separately. But by majority, the court held that it was open to the tribunal to have found that discrimination occurred and to have found that Christian youth camps had not been entitled to rely on the exemption that Christian youth camps had sought to. 
I spoke to Jim McKenna and to Sue Hackney about the children, the young people involved in this litigation and asked them about what that journey had been like to observe. Did you get to know the kids involved at all over the course of the proceeding? I, I did, and uh, personally for me, that was the absolute highlight, um, um, working with them, because they were all cross-examined. They all had to give evidence. Um, they were all cross-examined, and so we took statements from them and proofed them for, for cross-examination and got to know them pretty well. And it was, I mean, their journey was incredible, the, the braveness of these kids to to put their name on a public document um, um, you know alleging the discrimination and then to front up in VCAT to be cross-examined knowing that they'd had to give evidence about being same-sex attracted or their personal association with people who were same-sex attracted um, it, it was incredible it was remarkable um, and it was a real privilege to be involved in that the direct involvement, of, particularly the young people, fell away after the tribunal hearing. They didn't have any direct involvement in the Court of Appeal proceedings or the High Court proceedings. Um, but I, throughout that process, was in contact with them to give them updates and speaking to them. And uh, that, that that part of things for me was the absolute highlight of the case. Um, the, the One of the named persons... Um, no, I say named persons, that's what they're called in the statement claim throughout the judgments... Um, actually popped up in a um, in an Angry Boys episode as basically playing himself as the gay kid in the country town. Um, and his name's Jack Hegarty. He did... There's a Haywire um, audio recording that he did through the ABC that's available online that is... that, that makes just the point so clearly why this proceeding was important. Um, he's a kid growing up in Western Gippsland, um, coming out at school um, as being homosexual and then having to deal with the intolerance of a country town. And and Sue's written some articles as well about, uh, you know, the, the, the process and, and being a health service, why it was in the interest or why Cobol wanted to run this and why they thought that this was a, a positive um, measure for the health. So I think, you know, I, I'd really love to hear what Sue has to say about it now because she's a she's a really interesting woman who um, has very strong beliefs about these things and, and she put so much effort into this proceeding. Yes, I do have um, uh, occasional contact, which I do very much enjoy, um, with a couple of the young people. Um, it just reminded me, probably due for a follow-up, and it's all really great because I suppose one of the things... Um, that often comes up in our catch-ups is, yeah, that, that, that was a good thing to do. took a long time, but it was a good thing to do. Um, so that's great. And um, it, it does continue to wander in and out of my mind, particularly, I mean, I've continued to do work in the suicide prevention field, um, but now geographically I'm in a different state and that involves working with um, a lot of remote Aboriginal communities so it's, it's um, back in the same sort of challenges that are faced in the suicide prevention field because 
a lot of the the despair that is at the basis of um, suicidal thoughts and behaviours comes from isolation. You know, it comes from discrimination. These are things, parts of the environment that we need to to address if we want to get real about addressing suicide. And this is this is what I say is another real um, important aspect of, 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 of taking the of being involved in the case was that you know if our um, our state's own legislation in fact enables discrimination to occur, particularly equal opportunity laws, then we'll continue to have people reaching out in states of despair because of the effects of that. Of course, the scope of religious exemptions is a topic which is of continuing relevance in Australian public life with huge controversies erupting quite regularly on this issue. Both Sue Hackney and Jim McKenna spoke to me about those issues, about the interplay between religious exemptions and entities which are operating in the commercial sphere and their reflections on how these sorts of exemptions should be framed. So the the current Victorian religious exemption refers to doctrines, beliefs or principles, as which it and, seems to be broader than... An expansion, yeah. Yeah. And, and the Sex Discrimination Act refers to doctorates, tenets, doctrines, tenets or beliefs. And so is your view that those uh, formulations um, allow greater scope for people to claim religious exemptions? Look, at face value, it would seem that that, that aspect... Um, the... the Tribunal and the Court of Appeal agreed that doctrines was it's a reasonably narrow concept. Um, you know, it's the architectural um, structure to, to faith. It doesn't descend into, you know, particular beliefs about um, homosexuals and whatnot. Um, it seems to me that that expanding um, doctrines to doctrines, beliefs, and principles does broaden it. Um, although I, I note that the, the, the second of the exemptions now expressly relates to um, uh, reason. I, I think it now provides that it must be reasonably necessary to comply so that it adopts the, the, um, the objective test um, proposed by some of the Court of Appeal. So it, it, it narrows it in that respect. Um, but it, I, I think that the... Um, second reading speech suggested it, it's not intended to broaden um, the exemption, but certainly on, on, on one reading it does just that. Mm. It's really tricky. As I was contemplating these cases, I was thinking that on the one hand you've got a situation potentially where uh, you have courts and tribunals having to inquire into um, what is fundamental to a particular faith or religious practice and um, that sort of traverses on the conscience of the individual who might have particular views about what is or is not important. Um, And on the other hand, there is the possibility that you um, cede all power to the individual, uh, which is a very large loophole to create in 
anti-discrimination law, and it seems as mm. though it's very. Di- it seems to me as though it's very difficult to have a religious exemption um, without needing to um, navigate that tension between those two possibilities, and to avoid, uh, I guess, erring too far in either direction. Yeah, it, it is hard. On one, on one hand, it involves a court or a tribunal um, engaging in um, theological considerations, and on the other level, there's, a, there's the subjectivity of an individual who can, um, you know, rely on their personal idiosyncratic beliefs. So it's it's a very it's a difficult area for um, legislators, and it's a difficult area for courts and tribunals. Do you have views about? I mean, we're obviously in. It's, it's timely to talk about this case because, of course, we're you know in the midst of another round of public debate about um, religious exemptions to to laws of various sorts, and the Falau case is obviously a, a, a sharp illustration of um, how much public attention that can excite. Do you have out of this litigation a view about the way in which we should strike those exemptions, if at all? I think one issue that this case threw up um, is where religious bodies are um, carrying out activities in a commercial sphere. Um, to my mind, that is uh, a very different proposition to, um, to, to purely religious activities. Um, and, and I think there's also an important distinction between um, the right for people to the freedom of thought and freedom of belief and freedom of religion um, that is internal and then the manifestation of those beliefs and the manifestation of, of religion that can have significant consequences on, on other people. Um, and I feel quite strongly that, that their freedom of thought and freedom of belief must be absolute. Um, but where there's a manifestation of those things, particularly in a commercial sphere, then I think that, that it, it's, it's appropriate that that um, be regulated quite tightly um, and that any limitation on, on equality in the commercial sphere um, should, be, should be limited. It's an area that I think people are conscious of and so in previous times where people might have, have just sort of um, you know, copped um, a situation, they're now rightly reflecting upon whether what's happened has amounted to unlawful discrimination. Um, and, and obviously the focus of the media on various other situations makes people more attuned to these issues and makes people more likely, I think, to want to um, enforce their rights and, and perhaps test the parameters of existing laws. In this particular um, setting, it proved to be again, even less, difficult, uh, even less harder to understand because we were transacting in the commercial space, in the commercial sphere. We were trying to purchase a service. And here we have a business which subsequently, you know, plays the card that, oh, we're, ba- we're, we're set up for religious purposes, therefore tries to claim privileges or protections which are not available to any other sort of business in, in the commercial sphere. Look, Joe, honestly, from a personal perspective, I, I find there's some logic problems in having legislation which purports to protect 
um, members of the community because of the, you know, the particular personal attributes or indeed the belief systems that may hold. Um, you know, that's a very noble step to take and one should be afforded. But when we start to um, provide additional protections or special provisions um, It becomes problematic. Mm. Yep. Um, particularly when it comes to religious beliefs, because, say, for instance, if you make exceptions for people with disabilities, that is perfectly sensible uh, in the sense of having, um, you know, additional adjustments made in employment um, uh, set up because somebody's got a physical disability and so on. But when when um, uh, different protections or, or qualifications that are made on the basis of, of belief, I think you get into a really problematic area. And we know from Tasmanian legislation, they don't have any religious exemptions, and I'm not aware of any problems where people have felt any less protected under that jurisdiction. Uh, Dr Rufus Black reflected with me on the scope of religious exemptions the nature of debate about their scope and the place of these issues in Australian public life. Did it feel uh, like an uncomfortable exercise, like the kind of thing that um, perhaps shouldn't be the ordinary province of a court or tribunal when you were involved? No, look, it clearly was complex. It was clearly complex territory, but it didn't seem to me the court had any alternative given the way the legislation was framed. Um, you had to be able to establish what, you know, whether the behaviour was covered by these, uh, could be justified by these um, beliefs. And what I, so I don't think they had a choice to go there. And if you're going to have religious exemptions, I suspect you don't have a choice. Um, what I think, is kind of in, what I thought was important was to make sure if we were doing it that you were anchoring it to um, uh, material that had um, a clear public, uh, publicly available, uh, centred to by a community reference point because otherwise it could come down to inquiry into particular individual person's beliefs about things. Whereas clearly this is a... Legislation seems to, on my reading of it, be aiming to um, enable communities of people particular uh, ways of going about things. Um, and if you're going to do that, then you need, I think, need to be able to reference something that you can, with confidence, say that is a community's, um, uh, you know, beliefs about this, and have some confidence that, you know, there's a, a, a there's a basis for that. And, and, I mean, do you have a, view, a general view about the question of the scope of religious exemptions from anti-discrimination legislation as a product of your involvement or for, for, from your other reflection on such exemptions? Uh, um, look, I think the discussion about where that line is is one of the really important societal conversations. Um, I think it should always be up for discussion, though, um, uh, because we 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 do you know religion and societal views do evolve, um, and 
there can be points, I think, where a society quite legitimately can say those are those are a set of held beliefs, but they're not consistent with who we as a society have chosen uh, to be. As a society, we are um, we're more than um, we have to be more than just um, a set of you know uh, separate communities. Um, all operating according to their own beliefs. There need to be some beliefs that constitute what our kind of society is. So that's always got to be a moving... um, That's always got to be a a point for discussion and for those boundaries to be drawn and and redrawn as needed. So therefore, you know, exemptions, I think, always need to be subject for conversation, debate and, and, uh, you know, and on occasion change. Those basic questions raised by the COBOR case about the scope of exemptions from anti-discrimination law are still, as I've said, centrally part of Australian public life. I hope that hearing a bit over the course of these two episodes about the COBOR case, about the evidence that was taken uh, and about how the Tribunal and the Court of Appeal gave their decisions helped to inform you a bit about how this issue has unfolded historically. Don't forget you can find previous episodes on the website at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. I look forward to joining you on the next episode of In That Case. <laughs>